there, and welcome to our podcast around conversations that happen in organizations. After over 20 years of experience in large organizations and consulting organizations, we thought it would be a great opportunity to have some basic and simple conversations around what we're hearing in organizations and try to help to improve those conversations we're all having on a daily basis. So my name is Selena Milstam. I've been working in consulting in large consumer goods organizations and in telecom for the past 20 years. And I'm here with my colleague, Barack. Hello. I have a similar consultancy starting point in my career and then moved in um, telecom, stayed in telecom roughly seven, eight years in, in consulting, seven, eight years, another seven, eight years, maybe more in telecom. And today's episode is about decision-making in the organizations. We thought that this requires a little bit more um, attention than it gets. And it's so important in our lives so that we want to give you our own experiences mixed with a bit of science and some simple protocols to maneuver that decision-making landscape. So, Selena... We are, we were discussing about this together uh, for a while now. Some scientific facts, some um, behavior science in that, and also our own experiences in the companies that we were working. Um, we, we came up with a rough understanding of what are the important aspects of decision-making, like setting a frame to it first, and then we wanted to switch to what can we do to impact those variables during decision making. So do you want to start with that setting the frame section first? Well, I think the great thing about decision making is there's a lot of material out there. I think if you do a Google search, you'll find all sorts of models and steps you know, everything from getting the problem statement correct and then doing the analysis, making sure you get alignment and feedback from others and then building that action plan. But at the end of the day, it's much more complex than just all those steps in a little model. As much as I love a good model from a consulting experience, I think what we've heard and what we've been talking around is around the pragmatic ap application and implications of decision-making every day. And also we'll dive into some stuff about the difference between problem solving and decision-making or the overlap. But at the end of the day, when we start, we have to be looking at setting the context. So understanding the complexity that is happening in the world and those things that we have control over and don't have control over as leaders and employees making decisions every day. We also want to dive in into our biases. We've all been talking about biases in the context of diversity and inclusion. But when it comes to decision making, understanding how inherently biased we are and some specific uh, examples of what we should do to mitigate the risks of bias having a negative influence on the quality of the decisions we make are significant. So those are some of the areas we want to set the context for. Yes. And the decision making is so much into our lives and also in, in especially in, in our business lives, we make so many decisions databases, but also we, all of us, 
one way or the other get to make decisions that will impact a lot of people, that impact the next few years. And those decisions we've seen, we've ex experienced, require a bit more attention. Mm -hmm. That the, the world that we're living in is, has become so connected and complex that we, while making those decisions, we don't even know if we know all of the variables or not. So we don't know what we don't know. So mm -hmm. it's like there's almost a subset of variables that are presented to us that not that they don't cover the whole picture of that complexity. So that's one aspect. And the other one is, even if we have those variables at hand that are supposedly limited in number, we don't have the accurate data about those variables. So those both aspects of decision-making in this complex environment makes, hinders us to actually decide in an accurate way. And on top of that, there's a, there's a layer of biases that even though we knew all the variables, even though we had all the accurate information about these variables, our, our brains actually are not built for taking rational decisions. So we want to unpack those three aspects in the, in the context. I remember um, reading, reading in a, in a, in a book, and, and we'll give you some, some books as well for reference for the, for the audience if you want to dig deeper into those topics. One of the books was mentioning about the number of variables that is available to us are, are not all the variables. It's just like looking for your lost key under the street lamp rather than <laughs> not, not the whole street. I think it's a bit of a cliche um, example, but it is actually most of the time what, what we face. So mm -hmm. the variables that the, the things that we don't know that they exist or the accuracy of the variables or the data. And then our bias is, is sets a, it's a really difficult context. I almost think it's unfair to expect us anybody to, have to these make decisions. any decisions at all. Or <laughs> we, I think it's like we throw and it's. I think it's a good comment. We throw those decision making accountability. We we put that on the shoulders of people and. We expect them to make decisions like weekly basis in such a in such a flow, and then we expect all of these decisions to be accurate and correct. I think it's almost with this pace today, it's almost impossible to ask from the, from the from the people. But we can dig deeper into that. Yeah. So I, there's two things that strike me about what you said. First is the importance of being more intentional, and of course that's why we're even having this conversation. How can we help support leaders and uh, individuals and organizations to be more intentional around making good decisions, making having better conversations that lead to good decisions? Um, but the other piece is around the neuroscience and what happens in the brain. And we know that our actual brain has developed very little. So what are some of those inherent um, 
natural instinct that we have to be aware of, of how we are as, as humans. There is some research that's been happening over the past the, 20 years. The biases years. you're talking about Yeah, right absolute now. Yes. bias. And or, then yeah. just our capacity to hold contradictory information um, right. for different individuals. It's, you know, it's not that easy to have that contradictory and still make valid decisions that are not only influenced by, by bias, but as you're pointing out, that we're able to decipher of the data and facts that are coming to us, what is actually relevant to this specific decision that needs to be made. So how are we prioritizing the data and information that's coming to us? Because there's often a lot of data that's not relevant to a specific decision. So how, how do we actually ensure that we're looking at the right data? Okay, and before we then move on to the um, kind of pragmatic um, solutions that we can bring to this, to this topic, we're talking about the, the limitation of our data processing, mm. our brain's computing power, which is like, we don't want to, don't want to be unfair to our brain. It's just, it does a lot of computations at mm. any given time with our sensory organs and everything, but we're not built for deciding five-year business cases mm. in 45 minutes. That's what we want to say. And also sometimes we're not there's, there's an aspect that there's a concept of second order effects that whatever we decide, some, we cannot see the second or third order effects mm. that will come out of that decision. It's sometimes out of our ability to foresee. So biases, computational power, and also seeing the second or third order effects are layers that make the decision making a lot more difficult. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I get that's not something we're going to dive in today, unless you have that expertise. Um, but how well, technology I, 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 can help us in terms of sure. the, those algorithms and being able to get, you know, process more complex data, and seeing the consequences for the future in a more robust way. But I don't think we're going to cover that today. Not today. Mm. Mm. But I want to mention this second order effect mm. concept that um, a beautiful example that we've seen with COVID is that when we shut down or went into the lockdown in many, many countries, then it had the, it had a huge impact to sub global supply chain. Mm. And then driving that kind of impact on the on the supply chain the the whole supply of pesticides towards africa got interrupted mm -hmm. and then it created a whole um ecosystem failure where we had billions of locusts as a swarm and it also triggered a shortage of food and it ended up having like people die from it so this is a, a great example of second order effect that we mm -hmm. We just couldn't see, or the people, the decision makers couldn't see, like the, the dis disrupting the supply chain would have ended with deaths mm. um, in Africa. So those are actually the, the real dangers that we need to steer from. Just wanted to put it out there. Yeah, no, it's interesting because that is, you know, curious. Like, because the, the, the folks doing the research on this problem, decision-making neuroscience, and they're a, a group of folks both at Yale and Columbia 
who have been looking at this. And they were also thinking about and looking at the connection of reward and risk and how that influences decision-making. And even with reward, they were looking at the proximity and timing of that reward to somebody's ability to make a good decision. And I don't think they've come to anything really conclusive, but it's a little bit similar, I think, in terms of being able to understand the more complex aspects of the decision you take and what are the implications and the next steps and what are the things that are in our immediate environment that uh, are hurdles for us being able to think of uh, from a more systemic perspective. Okay, that's a lot of... So we don't want to be, we don't, we, we still want to stay optimistic. I think there are some simple solutions to these challenges. And there are also enabling tools as well, as well. We, we will cover those at some point, but right now, should we just go towards our kind of structuring of the decision-making process and should we just dive into that we now? We can dive into that, but I do think it's a good point because we are all making decisions every day, all day long, good and bad. I think we make them, you know, with different um, contexts, both of just like sort of a, a lack of response, you know, we don't get any feedback, so we actually take a decision, or we do these like voting by committee type of decisions, or we actually just as leaders just go ahead and, and make a decision because of positional power. So yeah, we can dive into some of the things that we think might help influence and increase the chance of, of making better decisions, knowing how tough it is in organizations to actually corral people, corral colleagues, and get people to um, make sense together in a meaningful way. See, maybe you want to kick us off. What's well, uh, I, I hoped that you would kick that one <laughs> off. So we, um, from our experiences, we, and also reading these kind of very cult, um, science behind that, like Kahneman's, um, system ones and system twos and everything that how our brain works, we came up, uh, with a, with a structure that kind of would we're actually going into the decision-making by, by slicing it into three uh, important aspects. One is the impact of the decision. And we don't think you should actually give the equal attention to choosing your, your lunch or five-year business plan. So obviously that impact has, a, has, an, um, has an impact. Uh, the second uh, thing is the complexity of the context that we're deciding or the decision itself. Uh, and we see the impact and complexity most of the time go hand in hand, not necessarily, but most of the time. So we're going to kind of handle them a little bit together. Um, and then there's the third one is what we felt in, in, in our experience is the urgency of that decision-making. So whether that decision should be taken on the spot because there's a crisis or you, we have time for a week or two or a month to actually go through the material and have a more solid 
decision making process. So that's the that's the third pillar, and we want to just go into the dive dive into those uh, pillars and then give some practical suggestions mm -hmm. about how to tackle them. Is that a good good intro? Good, you know? yeah. good. Okay, mm. okay. Do you want to uh, start with the with the impact and complexity part because the we said it's just uh, go hand in hand. Yeah. But what do you what do you think? Well, if I remember correctly, when we started talking about this, the first one that emerged was around seeking out contradictory evidence. I think often when we're feeling under pressure and we're in the midst of decision making and trying to think through what's the next most logical step and what is the decision, you know, we start to formulate um, a hypothesis around the decision we should be taking. That is the point when you really sort of feel like, oh my gut, this is the right way to go. That is exactly the point where you should stop and look for contrary evidence because we get so almost intoxicated by reinforcing a belief that we have that that is when actually we can make big mistakes by just falling into what seems to be easy because it feels right. And I think that that's a really important element in organizations that we need to be mindful if we truly want to make fact-based and thoughtful decisions is around exploring contrary evidence, particularly when you get that sensation of, ah, this is the right decision to make. So rule number one, or the suggestion advice number one is look for contrary evidence. And we, we talked about this and it's, it's amazing that whatever you search for in Google, <laughs> there's, there's always something which, which tells you you're right. Yeah. So it's so easy to find evidence that you're right. And also our brains mm -hmm. are geared for that. Mm -hmm. So looking for contrary evidence is rule number one. Do you, do you have an example of how, how we can do that? I'm, I know I'm going off, off script a bit here. Well, I think, um, you know, I think the most classic example is when you're interviewing somebody and you've mm -hmm. made a decision that um, uh, this is the right candidate for the role. And I mean, we'll jump into bias and other things in a little bit, but you've sort of made that decision. And then what happens is similar to Google, you're almost your own Google, you, you put a question there and you almost fabricate an answer or we, we have to run the risk of fabricating and hearing what it is we want to hear. Ah, he's a really good guy. And he definitely, you know, was able to build out that contract and build out that strategic plan. Yet he wasn't giving any specific evidence. That was us and our own brains creating those stories. So in interviewing, that's a really good example and um, time point when we need to say, wait a minute, if I really believe he's a great strategist, let me inquire and ha formulate questions that really would get to the heart of that he is more stronger perhaps on operational aspect that would contradict that. It doesn't mean we're trying to trap people, okay? It's not trying to then make up other stuff. It's just around creating a balanced picture, again, so we don't get intoxicated and just make a deci decision based on our, our actually our own stories that we're telling ourselves. 
That's a good example. Um, the the rule of thumb is that you shouldn't decide. That's this kind of side. No, you shouldn't decide whether you should recruit that guy or gal at, uh, until you reach the thirtieth minute mm. of the interview. So that's mm. kind of the the rule of thumb that um, some people try to follow. Mm. Kind of minimizes the bias there. All right. So that's look for counter evidence. Um, the second one we talked about is have a person in the team like almost designate someone mm. to be a challenger. And I think this is somewhat fam familiar for some, some of our audience, but can we kind of un unpack that a bit? Like what, what, what it means to be a challenger in a group. Mm. And also we also kind of put an additional item there, designate a challenger and a bias checker. So it almost yeah. someone who checks the group if they're actually being biased or not. Mm. Can, can you unpack that for us? Yeah. So if you have no, the luxury and hopefully we are making decisions within, within teams. So we're um, creating the platform for getting those different perspectives. Jim Collins, um, who's the author of Good to Great, he talks about the importance of not trying to achieve consensus. So even in a utopia, you would have a decision that is a unanimous agreement between everybody. But what he um, suggests is the sheer fact of encouraging conflict for um, creating that safe space for what he calls the brutal facts to get on the table. And then as a leader to be able to really um, encourage those facts to be discussed and conflict, you know, and, and we, we have this like negative connotation of the word conflict, but in these environments around decision-making, particularly as you suggest, if we are almost given roles in an organization or within that team to make the decision of the person who's really doing the challenger work and doing the checking around bias, that ultimately gets us to a better decision. So making sure those conflicts are open, that you can have those conversations and they're not seen as some kind of negative or um, negatively disruptive part of the process, but they are fundamentally core to challenging ourselves and creating better discussions. Okay, and that actually requires, we're not going to dive into that yet, but that requires a, a strong leader or leadership style mm. that actually can give permission to that person to be a challenger, mm. create that environment in the team that everybody feels comfortable mm. to challenge or don't take the challenges challenge personal. And this, there, there's there's an element there that requires a good leader and, and a mature leadership style. Mm. Absolutely. Almost. So it's not it's not easy. So we're we're saying that here, but it's not easy also to be very disciplined about that about in 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 those critical decisions. And I wanna I wanna add that uh, the the bias checker almost like the same person with the, with the challenger almost has to have literally a checklist mm. about what are the biases we need to Here's be uh, careful about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and not, not the, not the kind of list of the biases, 
but list of the behaviors that we don't want to see. Like the famous anchoring bias, like whoever uh, speaks first when the questions asked, the, the other people like more inclined to line up behind that thought process that the, to the person that first speaks. Now, this bias checker almost always kind of has a list saying that people shouldn't start talking. They should write down their mm. ideas first. Mm. And then there's, there's this discipline there saying in that meeting, well, hold on, please don't say your thoughts out loud write them down first, then we're going to do the round the table. And since you so brought it's, up it's leadership, difficult. that's a critical piece. As a leader, don't voice your opinion first. The reality is, is yeah. that the positional power within organizations, no matter how flat or lack of hierarchy you have in an organization, we know that the influence that the leader has and by um, getting their thoughts out there, because sometimes as a leader, you don't even have a strongly held belief. But if you make that comment first, significant impact on how the rest of the people will articulate their perspectives of beliefs. So since you brought up leadership. Yes. And it's a, because it's a good segue to the, to the third advice, which is create an inclusive environment, so very similar to the things that we were talking. So there's an, there's an element of inclusive leadership there mm. who will allow everyone to speak up. And there's this um, famous concept of information elaboration. Mm. So allow the team from a diff diverse backgrounds can bring up their added value. They can put that on the table and create a good environment for information elaboration so that information flow mm -hmm. is actually happening. So that's pretty much the, 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 the inclusive leadership style and the speak up as well. Yeah. As a third point. I love, I love how what you do, talk you about think? sort of this, like the flow. Um, I just can't help myself because it's so aligned with the flow of the, information. Well, yeah. the flow and the, and the, the, the very live nature of that discussion and dialogue. Um, so, you know, Ralph Stacey and Patricia Shaw and other complexity theorists, they talk about the importance of a leader being able to be very comfortable about being in charge, but not in control. And that's, yep. you know, that's the visual I get when you talked about this flow is that how as a leader, can you hold that space and still allow those different um, perspectives and opinions to be included in the dialogue. That doesn't mean as a leader, you can't say, okay, now we've had enough. This is like enough new perspectives and data. I mean, that's yeah. also an important um, characteristic and, and skill in facilitating this dialogue because otherwise you go on a tangent and then somebody is talking about some other uh, element that's not relevant, but being comfortable with that, um, being in charge, but not in control and, uh, and allowing and enabling the flow of that conversation. Yeah. Not easy. No, but can be practiced and learned. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the next topic, the next bullet for us is, uh, we're going a bit bullet by bullet here for some, for some of you, it will be maybe a bit too structured, but we want to be very clear about these 
pragmatic protocols mm. uh, that we can use in our daily lives. And then the next, the next item for us is some, something that we all started to learn newly that how human brain works at best the um the the cognitive load that we need to keep an eye on the amount of sleep that has a huge impact on that brain capacity so that notion of be mindful of your brain like be mindful when your brain works at its best and 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 you know more about this Sena help me out here well i love talking about this because of course uh, as you said all this research coming out and there's this uh guy matt walker he's a researcher and a scientist i first saw him on the rich roll podcast and then uh huberman podcast and now he has his own podcast great guy yeah so great like, guy I uh, just matt like, matt yeah matt walker yeah i'm like a disciple of his guy. now yeah. And exactly yeah. what you said. We know. Okay, you're all going to say, oh, I'm a morning person or afternoon person, evening person. But the research is pretty clear that if you're going to make a really big decision, do it in the morning. When your brain is rested, when you are um, have had that good night's sleep. And if you haven't had a good night's sleep, which by the research is very consistent, means seven to nine hours of sleep. Um, all of the you people who say, oh, I can get by with like four or five, the likelihood of that being true isn't isn't very high, but you can go to the expert, Matt, and, and not trust me. Postpone the decision. So you could still do some of the data collection and brainstorming. However, you have to be really mindful around the decreased cognitive ability that you're working with. And so we would really encourage you, actually, if there is a really big decision, we know in large organizations in the corporate environment, sometimes it's tough to say, sorry, I didn't sleep. Can we do this tomorrow? The chances of it being a better decision are significant. So would really encourage everybody to, to think about that and also actually to be proactive and say, tomorrow's a big day. I have some big decisions to make. I'm going to get my seven to nine hours in. And they're really simple life hacks. It's like, mm -hmm. it's not that difficult. It's the, these, these things like stop drinking coffee 10 hours earlier. Exactly. Right? Do not have too much alcohol consumption because it will have a bad impact on your sleep. Yeah, pretty much and no alcohol is probably good. Yeah, I want to be dramatic. I'm having, yeah, I'm having, having difficulty accepting <laughs> that fact for myself as well. So, um, another great scientist about the, about these topics uh, is, um, Huberman, Huberman mm. labs for us. We're also very kind of semi disciples <laughs> and very, we're very grateful. You, you're going to see his uh, YouTube channel. He's, uh, Huberman labs and the, and the, and the head of um, Stanford um, Neuroscience Lab, I think. It's an amazing person. Um, simple life hacks like 10 minutes, look out the window when you wake up. That blue light ray comes from the sun. You don't need to look at the sun. It's just like any any reflection there, around there. 10 minutes of that, it just gives your brain the signal of 
the day starts. Mm. And then your kind of brain, your machine starts rolling more efficiently. So there are really a few great life hacks that we want you to be very kind of mindful of. And then it will make your life a lot easier and your decisions a lot more accurate. So Matt Walker and Huberman. Huberman Lance. Was that, we're not getting, we're not associated we're with not that. Associated, we're not associated, but we're just diehards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is the the, the, the fourth um, advice point uh, from us. Then obviously uh, there's a, a, and the level of these things is totally up to you, meaning that it heavily, heavily depending on your decisions impact and complexity you decide if it's a if it's a very kind of easy decision meeting okay so let's just not be that dramatic let's just not appoint a bias checker for every decision making yeah. so you you'll be the judge of that that's why we're introducing those um protocols that depending on the complexity and impact ranges you decide to what extent you're going to practice them. Yeah. There's this whole topic of biases again. I mean, we talked about like bias checker will help, but I think this, and I'm, I'm a bit struggling there um, saying that because everybody talks about like the, the bias for the last five, 10 years, I've been the, become the, the, the bad guys or gals mm -hmm. like they're, so whenever people hear about biases, they're evil. Mm. But we have biases for a reason, which is evolutionary. Yeah. Right? So we, we don't flight. have yeah. yeah, we don't have this luxury of let's let's sit down and have a an, uh, presentation about if that tiger's gonna attack us or not. So we didn't have that. So <laughs> Run. I think but yeah, we I mean we don't need this we don't need we, we don't need to make biases the 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 guilty party for everything that's going wrong but we need to be also cognizant of the fact that biases are there mm. and it takes a lot of effort to actually suppress them when you're deciding the whole um conversation around system one system two thinking from kahneman mm. said you need to switch to more deliberate thinking, mm -hmm. slow thinking mm -hmm. of system two, so that you actually can realize some of the biases is still a great advice. Mm, for sure. Uh, so we don't want to go into the like individual biases in this podcast. I think we've, we've heard all of them pretty much, but the anchoring confirmation, um, negative avoidance, all of these like 10, 12 biases that are in place right now is heavily affecting um, the decisions. So the, the bias checkers and you being showing up there with your full capacity brain will help you to tackle some of those challenges. Mm. I like that you brought that up because that that's such a, an important point uh, because we, we do have biases for a reason. So the, the nuance there is for us, back to your word around intentionality, to be mindful and intentional 
around when we're um, using our biases to be more effective um, and, and move quicker. So for example, you know, you're in a park and a child falls, you know, that instinct, that bias, your experience before, you don't have to go through this whole elaborate decision making. The decision is to run and, and help the kid. Although the research is that most people freeze, but um, you know, those emergency situations, hmm. which we do have in organizations as well. Sometimes there's such a significant time pressure or the customer demanding, or there's some type of outage, or we're not delivering services or products in the right time. So there has to be so quick. And that is when, to your point, our biases can kick in around experiences we have had before. And, and then we use them, but we still want to be mindful, even in that short period of time of, am I using a bias that is going to serve to create a better decision, better outcome, greater impact? Or is this something that is actually just masking and will make it so I'll have to deviate or, or pivot much quicker than perhaps I should have to once the decision is made? Yeah. And still, I think, so I, I, I also want to make sure that we understand the the challenges to manage the, the the biases. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not easy. One of the one of the books I've, I've been reading had this analogy that as a kind of consciousness, and I'm not going to talk about what consciousness is that, but or the awareness, like the sensory awareness, we think we're the captain of our of our mind, mm -hmm. and we control our decision making, and we have a free will. Whereas more and more, the ev evidence suggests we're like a passenger on board on that ship rather than a captain. It's like our, our, the notion of free will is mm -hmm. not really that real. So, for example, it's just simple examples like going back to the interview. So whenever you're interviewing someone... Mm. The, the research shows that if you show up um, being smart and presentable, whatever that means in that culture, mm -hmm. could be a, a shirt and a jacket, could be something, doesn't matter. If you show up like smart and fit for the role, mm -hmm. which your looks, the questions that you are going to be asked are 30 to 40% easier and simpler. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's no way that the interviewer can kind of deliberately tone it down the questions. It's just like our brains make us ask simpler questions. So all of these things are really hard to tackle. That's why we should at least show up with our, with, with mindful, being mindful of those traps mm. and try to mitigate them. A bit. And back to this point around having this bias checker, it reminds me of um, some research I read, which I, I can't remember the reference, I apologize, but it was around specifically judges and um, how they decided on cases and they were looking oh, yeah. at level of attractiveness of um, the, the per individual being accused. And boy, those who were identified as less attractive um, had significantly higher um, guilty um conclusions or you ever whatever were found guilty more frequently and 
actually um, the fines or time uh, in incarceration was more significant, higher. So again, judges who go through a very rigorous training around legal and take an oath around ethical and responsive uh, and responsible decision making, that susceptibility bias is right there. And what what could be different? How could we influence that? If, for example, there was sort of like a bias checking, even in the courtroom, it's the same way in organizations. And I guess we have other things that are similar to level of attractiveness or perceived intelligence, or to your say, even how you dress or your hair looks or yeah. um, your accent. I mean, there's lots of the, research yeah. around different accents and, and how those influence uh, as well. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's such a rabbit hole yeah it is I think, uh, what, what was it with the with the with the judges it was uh so if they if they in and that's that's done in the u.s if they if their team lost on that weekend oh no and it and it's a monday and the weather is nice outside you'll you'll get a really really high sentence uh for what you've been done wow. and and yeah yeah it's like you you pray that your your judge judge's team has won, and then that that weekend, and it's raining outside. You you're better off like that. So that that the, the biases are, and there was a from from the book um, Kahneman's last book called Noise. Oh, um, right, so you know, right, that, that right. was there. That was there because it's also the, the, they also uh, mentioned the. the bias checker there in the appendix as well, as far as I remember. Oh, cool. I don't know if yeah. Yeah, so check that out as well. It's a it's a good book. Um, it's not as good as the the first uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, but it's still a good book. Cool. So that we we covered now impact and complexity mm-hmm. and the kind of protocols which can help you um, doing the decision making there. And there's a huge thing about urgency mm-hmm. now because it's. It's always urgent, right? Mm. Whatever comes to our table, I mean, not always, but in business life, things tend to be labeled as urgent. Mm. Do you want to talk about it? Well, I do think this is where uh, in organizations where we can get help from some of, of the models and thinking around problem solving. So in decision making, I think it's not always necessary like to do this heavy definition of what the decision is versus in problem solving, you really need to. However, when there is urgency and time pressure uh, imposed, what I think um, really makes sense is actually to validate the urgency and importance, you know, um, matrix there. When they're talking about urgency, I need it right away um, to validate actually what that means. Just that term means so many different things. That can mean, well, for me, that probably means within the hour, but for somebody else, it might mean within the week. So how do we actually explore further the timing aspect? And then um, how do we um, look at that in relationship to uh, complexity and impact? Uh, in terms of the speed piece, because the reality is, is you have to leapfrog some of these points. Yeah. And I think then, then what we were discussing, what the best, the best practice then is, well, it's, it's real world, right? Some, some important decisions will also be urgent. And what we have discussed, what, what works best is 
to put in a check-in point or the, the waypoint, like to look back a few weeks or a few days later, like have I or have we made the right decision? And there's a whole um, topic around course correction, how, how flexible we should be, and we're gonna we're gonna come to that now. Um, but the more urgent the decision is, the some of these steps we will be missing. Right? Mm. So maybe we'll just make that decision with a with a poor quality after poor quality um, sleep or we couldn't like a point or we couldn't get that whole market analysis at hand. We just need to make that decision. What we're saying is that then we need to be consciously putting course correction check-ins after a, after a short period of time. Mm. But that course correction, that brings us to this sort of like quagmire of flexibility. So um, if we if we think about good decision makings being what we've talked about in terms of creating an open space, making sure the brutal facts get out there, really acknowledging and respecting the knowledge and competence and experience that our yes. colleagues are bringing and incorporating their perspective and then taking a decision and then everybody sticking to making it successful. You're now bringing in this like curveball around flexibility and course correction. Wait a minute. If we've made a decision, we've made a decision. Yeah. And that's yeah. true to, to many regards. Like, hey, now we're the team. We're going to make sure this is successful. But what you bring up is such an important part. And I think as leaders, sometimes we get uncomfortable with because it's on this spectrum of how flexibility without losing credibility. You know, you have to be open to readjusting when there's new data. True. And this is a, a, a difficult, difficult waters to maneuver for a leader. Like if you, if you become too flexible, then people are going to tell behind your back. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, he or she's going to change her mind anyway. Or if you, if you kind of stay too adamant, then you lose your ability to maneuver in the face of new information. So how, how do leaders maneuver those, those risks or mitigate those risks? I do think this, this is like then um, pretty core to leadership um, in terms of being authentic, being able to admit when um, you make mistakes and being data driven. So I mentioned earlier before, it's around um, making sure we have the data that's the right data and not allowing ourselves to get constipated in the decision-making process. So with urgency in organizations, you can't labor and bring in perspectives forever. So once the decision makes, if there's new information that comes, then the, the experience that I've had at least is that that seems like a reasonable time to come together, to look at the progress that's been made, to validate what influenced the decision to begin with, and then perhaps pivot. Or you talk about course correction, which is fundamental to the, you know, or inherent to the complex organizations we're working in, that new data will come or context will shift. And those are things that we don't have, you know, complete control. I mean, in organizations, that can be anything from 
so a move that a competitor makes, some investment or change they're making, to any kind of geopolitical decision, uh, a government changing legislation or influencing what different type of vendors or are able to come into a country. So we have to be able to flex, to be flex, but not arbitrarily. So one of the things that that is is really important is around, you can make a decision, not everybody has to agree, but they have to understand what informs it. True, but here's a question. I, I was always wondering about the cultural aspect of this. Now, in in many countries, I'm not going to kind of name countries here, but the, the, the leadership culture or the expectation from a leader changes a lot mm, depending on the, on the culture. And, and there was research that, that actually suggested that the company culture precedes um, national, national culture, culture. The tribal culture. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if that was conclusive, but I could see in many companies that company cultures could be as strong as national or tribal cultures mm-hmm. there. But still, there's something around the expectation from a, from a leader. So it's like if you're in, and, and, and there's a coefficient of that, which I forgot. If you're in, and, and Denmark is one of the lowest coefficients. So it's like they're so not hierarchical. So that the, the coefficient of like hierarchy dependency or something similar is, is really low. So you could actually maybe be more comfortable course correcting or pivoting when you're leading people in Denmark, but in another culture where, 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 where people expect you to lead as like, well, you're the boss, you take the decision. Yeah. That culture is probably less perceptive or more, more receptive towards course correction. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think the research you're referring to is Hofstadt's, um, which we could have a long debate around the validity Mm -hmm. and influencing, particularly as the complexity Mm. and globalization is happening. But I do think in the organizations I've worked in, um, I've certainly experienced that national culture uh, has certainly influenced the culture of the organization, as well as the culture of the company has superseded. I saw that early on in my career um, where I worked for a consumer goods sportswear company um, where it was very American, very open and um, are having conversations with Asian colleagues. They always commented that the, the culture, the organizational culture actually enabled them to act in a different way than the traditions and customs of their own country um, mandated. So that certainly influences decision-making and is certainly something that's worth being aware of as Mm. you're bringing particularly diverse groups uh, together to make decisions that those things are influencing. Similar to the being acknowledging of the biases, I think um, that that's where the real tough stuff comes in to being an inclusive leader. Okay, when everybody's similar, it's easier. When there are differences in the group, it's more difficult. So again, as a leader, being more uh, attuned and aware of that is critical. And to summarize that, that urgencies, um, heading and also the the flexibility, then our suggestion is that if, if, if decisions need to be urgent, please, book 
a kind of check in or course correction, like give yourself, allow yourself to actually pivot and also to be able to pivot and course correct, you need to keep the information flow open. Mm -hmm. So you cannot say that, okay, we've decided last week it's done and then stop all the analysis. I think also urgent decisions should come hand in hand with a continuation of inputs um, until that decided check-in time. And the flexibility is obviously then, depending on the, on the context, leaders who can actually pivot in the light of new information are more successful. We know that, mm. but also there's a, there's a fine line being indecisive of too much changing your mind there. We want you to be careful about. Mm. Absolutely. So something we, that we, just, we, talk, we, yeah. we, we said, we said like at the end, like get to the right outcome. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's kind of the, the North star, I think. Yeah. But also don't get like too heavily invested or, or married to it as well. I mean, it's around, you know, to the, to the decision, to the mean? decision. Or, yeah. yeah. Like being yeah. confident, but holding it lightly. Uh, I mean, I think Palo Alto has become quite famous introducing this, you know, fail fast and learn <laughs> where they're mm -hmm. promoting much more of a experimentation mindset, uh, which I do think is really valuable in the whole decision-making um, world uh, of of looking at it as what do we get from an experiment we get data what do we do with data we make decisions based on the data i do yeah. think that is very helpful um as long as we're mindful of um of these different complexities that we already talked about in organizations so sometimes it's not so easy and there are um linkages and connections to both risk and reward as we spoke about earlier yeah well as as much as i dislike the the buzz buzzwords i think experimentation or decently designed experimentation and design thinking helps mm. this this course correction a lot you don't need to be in a fancy silicon valley company yeah absolutely. Uh, to be able to do that um that actually concludes the, the three main impact complexity and urgency um, aspects there. Um, there's also like towards our, our finishing this, this conversation, I want to bounce this, this saying, which I've heard in the previous years from an executive saying that, well, sometimes you just make a decision mm. and try to make it work. Like there is, there are no good or bad decisions. You just have to make a decision and then put your resources behind that decision to make that the right decision. And it's a controversial saying, yeah. so I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree or disagree. Mm -hmm. What do you, what are your thoughts? Well, I think before I answer it specifically, I would say one caveat that we haven't addressed. He, but he totally failed afterwards. That, that, that is relevant for like, specific like, to this one is um, we're making an assumption that all leaders and teams are uh, approaching this from an ethical and responsible business practice perspective. So yeah. um, we're we're using that as the baseline. I just want to make sure that that um, yeah. that was clear. 
But in terms of sticking to it, uh, I, I think that um, it's an um, interesting aspect of decision-making to hold, particularly since I was just saying that the outcome or the decision that's made, we should hold lightly. I do think it um, goes on that spectrum of being flexible and agile and um, then losing trust of people. If you are a leader that is never sticking to a decision, then people will get frustrated. If you're a leader who sticks to a decision to the bitter end and just continues to put resources into it when there's clear evidence that perhaps there are, are some errors in in how you have assessed the risk or um, assessed the return on investment, then there has to be a shift there. So I Unfortunately, that's where this gets quite gray and what is, I, I guess, at the it, center of difficult, complex decision making. It does. And one of the things um, 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 I have seen in my experience is that a good team that has the right speak up mm -hmm. environment will be a good I don't know if it's a good analogy, but the, 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 the cannery in the, in the mine, mm, yes. but it's like kind of like early warnings or because mm. the, I actually, a, I think the, you have to tell the story of the canary in the mind. I don't, I'm not sure if that's a the, universal understood story. Okay. Then you go ahead. Cause you'll be, you'll be better at articulating. That. Well, probably not, but they used to have the canaries in the mines because um, they very quickly uh, assessed if there wasn't enough oxygen or if there was explosives that the scent, what was it? The, the gas leak. Yeah, the, the gas, gas leak. leak I think. Yeah. So that, that would be a very early, maybe not very animal rights effective, but a good way um, for to hmm. signal that actually that people should get out of there as quickly as possible. So there wasn't uh, further risk to them. And what the story goes is, you know, what are those canaries in organizations that kind of sniff the gas early and send out the warning signals to get yeah. out of a decision or get out of a climate or make a change that will mitigate the risk um, that is that sort of you know, this invisible thing happening, but it's sort of like the goldfish in the water. When we're in organizations, it's almost impossible to see the water. So how do we um, use that yeah. analogy to have the warning signal? And and it, it's just as a leader that people have to create that safe, safe environment. I know it sounds cliche, but safe in my speak up environment um, so that we hear those warning signs it's and also again it's such a difficult job for a, for a major decision maker because sometimes we also see that resilience help mm -hmm. right so like quitting early on a kind of a long-term project is also maybe not the right thing so relying on good people in your team have a good rational kind of reiterations is so important to for you to understand okay do we pivot now do we push through is that resilience will pay off or not those are really difficult situations yeah. uh, to find your way hmm. which are really I, I almost, yeah. uh, sorry go ahead no, go ahead 
No, just like oh. con continually developing that critical thinking um, and your ability for really solid risk mitigation and can really help in this in, in decision making. So to promote that within your team. And yeah. that only comes really from actually practice of enabling those conflictive or contrary ideas to come about and then actually having those discussion discussions around um, various risks, potential for risks and mitigation. Yeah. Yes. And it's almost, I think, the, the decisions that we're, we're expecting the leaders of the organizations um, or companies are are supposed to do are becoming so complex. I think obviously the tools also improving the, the, the computation capability of our tools have increased drastically. Mm. And I think there's a, there's this exponential increase of uh, computational ability that everybody knows. I think there's also almost like linear slash exponential increase of complexity and human brain just can't use those tools to address those. So human brain is, is going nowhere, let alone exponentially. Mm. So I think at this point, I also think that we need to be cognizant of the fact that we cannot make those major decisions every week and expect people mm to be successful. I can almost hear some of our audience would say like, well, that's what they're getting paid for. Mm. And yes. And also I completely agree on that. But also I think we are in such a context that the complexity and the tools abilities are going slightly beyond human capacity to handle them. Mm. Which is why, and I just can't help myself. This is like when to make it very basic, um, whether it's decision-making or many of these conversations that um, we're having in organization, keeping them simple, scientific and human, I think is a pretty good rule of thumb to, to actually ensure that we're being mindful of that we are human beings as so far, we're not robots taken over, even though I'm very intrigued by the whole digital transformation and how not it yet. can help us to make better decisions. Most of the time, we're just people interacting with each other. So um, being mindful of those things. I think it's a great uh, closing. We're, uh, well, thank you uh, to have listened to us. Yeah, thanks. So far, um, I hope, we hope, that it was beneficial to all of you. Mm -hmm. We're going to keep talking about the conversations that we're, we're having in the organizations. Um, the AIs, uh, the hirings, the leadership will be part of those conversations in the upcoming episodes. Cool. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks.